Risk Chats with a firm. This is your host, Paul Marshall, and uh, we also have our co-host, Mr. Dan, over here. How you doing, Dan? Doing well. Looking forward to kicking this new year off with one of the best podcasts with Mr. Paul Miller. But there you go. And so, uh, Paul Miller, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Paul. All right, so we got two Pauls. We'll figure that one out. But um, <laughs> you're the important one for our for our uh, podcast today. So the topic of our uh, podcast is risk culture. And uh, Paul, you wrote a really interesting article on that that we wanted to talk about. Um, but if you don't mind, do you want to just kick us off, kick us off with a little bit about yourself? Just tell us, uh, you know, who you are. What do you do? Oh, sure. Yeah. So. I'm Paul Miller. I'm a management analyst at the National Institutes of Health, uh, NIH, which is an operating division within the Department of Health and Human Services. So I work in the NIH Enterprise Risk Management Program. Um, I've been there since 2016, and uh, a big part of what I do is provide training and technical guidance uh, to uh, NIH risk management practitioners. And so before that, I was at the Department of Health and Human Services standing up their um, risk management program. I mean, it started out as program integrity, but that was uh, morphed into risk management as it is today. And I was there from 2011 to 2016. Awesome. And you work with Meredith over there, right? Correct. I work for Meredith Stein. All right. Yeah, she was on the podcast like two years ago. Man, it's been a while. But uh, so, yeah, happy to have some more folks from NIH jumping in here. This is awesome. Um, all right. Well, I, I think we'd like to start maybe just refreshing the audience on a little bit about NIH's ERM program. You know, if you just give us a high level, how, how does that program, how is it structured? How does it work over there? Because I know you have, you have a lot of different institutes, right? So do you mind just giving us a high level uh, overview? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So NIH is charged with advancing biomedical research for the uh, to enhance the lives of American people. And we do that through our various institutes and centers. So we have 27 institutes and centers that focus uh, research on a particular body part or a condition. So we have the National Cancer Institute, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Uh, and each one of those institutes administers research programs intramurally, so on our Bethesda campus or other campuses throughout the country, as well as through research grants uh, provided to our grantees. And so our risk management program operates in a very decentralized manner. So uh, the office of the director, which I work in, um, houses the risk management program and develops the policies, procedures, guidance for NIH risk management, but each of the institutes and centers has their own risk management officer, which is a senior executive who serves as that champion for risk management in their respective institute and center. And they're supported by a risk champion who is usually a senior analyst who does the day-to-day -day risk management activities. And so NIH's risk management program is made up of all of those risk management officers and champions and my colleagues uh, under Meredith Stein provide technical guidance, training, and support to help them essentially run their own little risk management programs. Additionally, we analyze and report out on different um, risks, risk events, or, or risk analysis to senior NIH leadership to help them decide 
which risks need their attention and which risks can be delegated down. Yeah, sounds a little bit like HUD, some other places I've seen. Yeah, yeah. You know, Paul, one thing you mentioned that interests me is, you know, it sounds like you really built this off of the program integrity you guys were working on, right? This is kind of the evolution of that program integrity. Can, can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Did, how, how much did program integrity really assist you in standing up, you know, these risk management offices? Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. Okay, here we go. Can you hear me now? Sorry. Okay. So, Paul, you mentioned that um, really the evolution of this started with your program integrity offices, and it's kind of evolved into these risk management offices. Um, from my experience, I've seen HHS has been further along than other agencies in their program integrity at that point in time. Can you kind of expound on how much that really assisted you guys in setting up a true risk management office with, with kind of the structure that was set up with program integrity? Uh, yeah, so at HHS, um, it started out as like the, an office of program integrity. And it was just more at identifying vulnerabilities for our programs. And so by the time I had left HHS in 2016, you know, ERM was starting to take a strong foothold uh, in the government uh, with the revision of OMB Circular A123. And so it really kind of mothballed, I guess you say, the program integrity focus and turned it more into the enterprise risk management focus to where it's not just about identifying vulnerabilities in a program, but really about uh, what are the challenges and opportunities for our strategic goals. Um, so it took it more out of a compliance aspect of this is just something we have to do to this is just really good management, something we should be doing. And that kind of carried over into you know, NIH um, when I went, out, went over there. I mean, they've had risk management before I got there. Um, NIH has had risk management since uh, 2009, I think, is when their risk management program um, was started. But even um, in 2016, with ERM kind of taking shape, NIH's risk management program evolved from you know, this compliance grantee oversight um, process to really looking holistically at how NIH accomplishes its mission and what can we do to enhance our ability to do that mission, but also manage the things that may hinder our ability. Cool. Yeah, no, I, that makes sense. It's kind of it really going to the next, that next level, and that's not just, you know, focusing on compliance. It's, you know, using this information for, for operations and stuff. For value, for really, value. for right. return on investment. I, th I really think that's what yeah. doing. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. Um, so now what I want to delve into here, this kind of the main topic of our conversation is this idea of risk culture and how, you know, you all have started to use some metrics to measure this stuff and then kind of impact how you, you know, how you administer your program. So do you mind giving us a little overview, Paul, of the uh, – article you wrote there what the synopsis was there oh sure yeah so the article i wrote is published in the frontiers family of scientific journals so for those of, of you who may not be familiar with frontiers it's an open science uh, peer-reviewed platform that covers a wide range of scientific topics not just hard science but even there's some uh, social science, and even some risk management, uh, I was surprised to, to learn. 
And so they run different research topics in which they request uh, practitioners, uh, researchers, and academics to contribute you know, their research or their thoughts on a particular topic. And so a colleague of mine from HHS uh, was serving as a topic editor for the research topic, Use of Behavioral Metrics in Government. And he reached out to me and, and asked if I would be willing to submit an article on how I use the FEVS data along with some of my training metrics to inform NIH's ERM program policies. And so, sure, I was happy to do the article. Um, saw that was getting some, some traction. But the article covers how NIH uses uh, the FEVS to assess its risk culture. You know, we hear a lot of times how important it is to have a risk-aware culture in order for a risk program to succeed. But, you know, what I didn't uh, hear a whole lot is, okay, well, how do we measure that? How do I know if I have a risk culture? I mean, I can observe some things, and there's a lot of vignettes and, and stories uh, people shared. But, you know, I wanted to kind of explore how do you measure culture? And so that's where the FEVVS came in. And I look at four particular questions uh, for the FEVS to determine well, how healthy is NIH's risk culture. So I look at you know, how comfortable are people disclosing a suspected violation of law or rule? Uh, how protected are, do people feel from health and safety hazards? Do they feel like they're successful at accomplishing their mission? And how well do managers and leaders communicate the goals of the organization? And so I talk about you know, how the responses to those questions give me some insight into how well uh, NIH is promoting a risk-aware culture. And then the other piece in that article discusses my training metrics. Now, I use the Kirkpatrick model of training evaluation that has four different levels of metrics uh, for training. So I gather these metrics mainly through surveys and uh, like on-the-job performance. So I'm looking at how do they feel about the training? Do they apply the training to their job? Are they learning something as a result of the training? And is NIH better off as a result of that training? And so the article discusses how those metrics, you know, shape what we do at NIH in terms of our risk management policies. Yeah, so Paul, you mentioned the FEVS um, survey, which is the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. So my question for you is, you're getting the responses in, but how do you, how do you kind of filter the data integrity on that, right? When I get a survey, when Paul Marshall gets a survey, we may not be paying full attention to it, and we might just fill out what we want them to think. So how do you manage that? What, what did you do with that? What what kind of risk measures did you take to just make sure people aren't saying what they think you want to hear? Yeah, so I think it's important uh, to acknowledge the uh, data integrity issues with the FEVS in the sense of any other survey, right? People yeah. may not, like you said, pay that much attention to it or they're just uh, clicking through. Uh, so we want to be clear that we're not relying solely on the FEVS. Yeah, it's one metric that we use or one survey. We also have an internal stakeholder survey. We also have training metrics related to 
the, the risk assessments that we require our institutes and centers to perform every year. So, so we mitigate in that sense that we're not solely relying on one survey. Um, and that just gives us some insight. Um, and the FEVS has been around for a while. Um, I think it's still administered through the Partnership for Public Service. Um, it gets a lot of visibility, a lot of promotion. So I think people take that um, survey pretty seriously. I know a lot of managers and leaders will hold different workshops going over the, the results. So I think it's an important that we acknowledge that, okay, uh, causation or correlation doesn't equal causation and that whenever we take survey data that there's always some assumptions but you know I always think like some data is better than, than nothing without yeah. the FEVVS I don't think I would have a lot of uh, other uh, m metrics to rely on so I think I think we mitigate that by having various sources of behavioral metrics yeah that's great that's that's perfect risk management right there now, how, how much FEVS survey data do you have? How many years back do you go? Um, do you have any plans in the future for how you're going to use it? Can you, can you touch on that? Yeah, so I've been tracking this uh, since 2017, um, just seeing what changes are made and trying to establish a, a baseline in the first couple years of it and then uh, seeing how the metrics change as a result of certain actions we take. So, you know, for, for instance, um, you know, from in 2017, um, the positive response to the question, can I disclose a suspected violation of rule or law, was sitting at, you know, 72% uh, positive in 2017. And so couple that with the um, question about communicating goals in 2017, only 69% had a positive response to that. And so in 2019 and 2020, we started uh, reaching out to our strategic planning uh, offices to kind of foster a relationship with a risk management community to say like, well, risk isn't just something we do separate. It's part of, you know, strategic planning as well. We established a governance body in 2019 um, that helped create NIH's first risk profile. And not only did we create it, but we communicated that out to our risk champions, to risk managers, to our executive officers, to get people to understand, like, here's what leadership is focused on. Here's the risks that are important to them. You know, how does this affect what you do uh, as well? And according to the, the data, from FEVS for 2022, you know, those measures have gone up by six or 7%. Uh, so we've been tracking it for, for a couple years. We're seeing some, some positive changes. The plan is to keep uh, looking at, at that data to assess, you know, do we need to do more outreach and communication for certain areas of NIH's risk culture? Or, you know, are we okay with, you know, what's currently being done? Did you, did you see any anomalies during the COVID years? I'm curious if that impacted that. Yeah, so actually, for so during the COVID years, uh, a lot of the answers took their biggest spike, especially in mission, accomplishing the, the question about our, our, do you feel you're accomplishing your mission? I think there's a lot of folks who really saw firsthand, you know, the results of their work yeah. and how, the American people were affected by NIH's work during COVID. So 
you know, risk aware actually went up um, because of COVID, because of that heightened uh, one alert, especially with the safety and hazards on the job. Um, we were have a lot of labs at NIH. So safety was already kind of um, up there in terms of being at the forefront of people's minds when you work in a lab, but COVID, you know, helped in that aspect because that was a risk that was really close to NIH. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was right in our wheelhouse. And of course we, NIH got a lot of visibility during, during COVID. So let me jump in here. Um, so that, yeah, the survey and it's so different, it sounds like you have a couple different surveys. So you have some great data from there. Um, and you also talked about, like you said, the Kirkpatrick model, that's related more to training. Uh, and you walked us through, I think, some of the four outcomes you look at for that. But can you kind of dive a little deeper into that? You know, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, what data sources were you getting from training sessions? What did you learn from the data that you gathered using that method? Yeah, so the Kirkpatrick model is very useful for evaluating training. Uh, so we accomplish that, or we get those metrics primarily from two sources. Uh, so there's training surveys. So after I conduct a training session with our risk champions and our risk managers, you know, ask them, well, how did you feel about the, the training? And then there's also questions about, well, what from this training do you plan on implementing or using in your day-to-day job? And that gives us some idea of whether they're finding the training useful. The other part of it, and this speaks to that third level of uh, behavior base where I look at their on-the-job performance, you know, every year th- those risk champions are responsible for submitting an annual risk inventory. And so for NIH, our risk inventory requirements are that each of the institutes and centers submit at a minimum three enterprise risks that they are actively reducing. Now to ensure that we're getting good quality risk data, from our risk champions, we have a set of data quality standards that we ask them to adhere to. The two biggest ones um, that have the most impact is that risk statements are written in an if-then format because uh, a couple years ago, I think you know, way back um, in 2017, maybe earlier than that, you know, we were getting risk statements that were just you know almost a paragraph long, and it was really hard to tell what the risk statement what or what the risk was, right? It was just kind of almost like uh, two or three risks rolled into into one. And the other major data uh, quality standard that we ask them to adhere to is reduced action plans that have to identify actions that are above and beyond what they're currently doing. So for us at NIH, we delineate between an accept and a reduced risk response by what are you going to do different? So an accept risk response is we're comfortable with the current controls. We think this risk is well-managed and it's within our comfort level. We're not going to do anything new. We're going to monitor our controls and ensure that the risk remains within our comfort level. Now reduce, you know, we're saying we're not comfortable with current controls or the way the risk is currently being managed, we're going to do something new to reduce the impact and or likelihood. That was something our risk champions were really struggling with. A lot of our reduced action plans were a laundry list of current controls and what their current procedures are. And so trying to explain that difference um, had, had some issues with them 
adhering to that standard. In, in fact, in 2020, you know, only 28 percent of our reduced action plans were meeting our standard. So we created a workshop you know, or a training session where they take on the role of a risk manager at a fictitious institute and walk them through a process for how do you develop a reduced action plan and compare it to what an accept action plan would look like. And we've had this workshop for the past couple of years now. I've even have a micro training version of it that uses, you know, uh, doing the dishes as an example of a reduced action plan. And we've seen some vast improvements in the data quality of our reduced action plans. In fact, now 66% of our reduced action plans are identifying new actions that they're doing. They're meeting our standards. So that's an example of how the Kaprachik model metrics are helping inform what areas need to be trained. Yeah, and I wanted to delve in that a little bit more. So, uh, you know, because part of your article as well, you were basically pointing out, okay, we get this survey data, we get this training data, and then what do we do with it so some of the things that you had mentioned were, you know, maybe this will help you improve your policies or improve the, tr obviously improve the training you're given out there and even improving just communication of the program itself. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, you gave one good example of if then, you know, kind of the if then statements for their risks, that's probably something that came out of the, the data you reviewed. But uh, yeah, please give us any examples of how things may have changed as far as a policy or a communication style. Oh, so one of the things that FEVS uh, data showed us as well as our internal stakeholder uh, survey showed us is that, you know, roughly 27% of our, our stakeholders don't know or they weren't using um, our using risk data in their decision making. And so as a result of that, over the past couple years, we've gotten better at communicating your ERM goals to employees. Um, but probably the biggest change was we revamped um, and uh, created what we call functional owner reports that sends risk data to all of our business leads in our manager, like OHR, the head of acquisitions, the head of um, OCIO, and lets them know here are what the institutes and centers are identifying in terms of risks related to your area. Here's what they're doing. And it puts it into bite-sized chunks. Instead of just giving them spreadsheets of data, it actually shows them trend information, summary information of things that would help them inform a decision, like should they establish a work group? Do we need to make changes to our supply chain? Things of that nature. Uh, they're really make sure that the data that we're providing isn't just for reporting, but it's intended to drive some of their decision-making. And so that's been um, kind of a policy focus over the, for the last year or two and into the future is how can we improve data for decision-making because we were getting some insights from these surveys that our data isn't exactly being used as it should be. Yeah, I love that. It's like the direct, I mean, you directly saw these survey results. You saw the numbers were low, and then you took an action to actually, okay, we got to improve our communication because this isn't getting through, right? Right, yeah. It really helped us um, kind of focus, take a little bit of the focus away from risk reporting to 
what risk information do our stakeholders need to make decisions? Um, and then even some of the, the survey uh, was showing us that our training focused a lot on hardcore risk management stuff, which is great. But in order for our risk champions to do their job, they have to be able to facilitate risk discussions. They have to be able to kind of what I've deemed uh, over the last two years is the softer side of risk management. These things like teaching ISO and teaching the green book and teaching all this other stuff is great. But if you rely on risk managers and other people to talk about risk in a healthy culture, that type of training isn't going to work. So I partnered uh, with our ombudsman here and had a workshop on how to have uh, risk discussions. So it talked about things like emotional intelligence, conflict resolution, consensus building, gaining trust, you know, all those things that you wouldn't necessarily think as a risk management training topic, but these, uh, these survey data is showing me that that's where a lot of the culture stuff is going, is going to change. And so we've done this workshop, I think for the third year, uh, this year will be the third year that we have this workshop and it was received very well. It's even gone outside of our risk management community. Um, so it also opened up our eyes to, you know, this kind of you know, more non-technical risk management training. So I think I have one last one and then Dan's probably going to jump in with one of his. Um, so I was curious, you know, and, and maybe it's more of the survey than the training, but but also sort of related to what Dan had asked about the integrity of these survey res survey answers that people give. So, so let's say for example, you had one that was, you know, I'm comfortable letting management know when there's something not in compliance or something like that. And let's say, you know, your, your, your percentage on that is, I don't know, lower than you'd want it to be, you know, 40%. So how do you know why they're answering the question that way? You know, is it because, you know, there's not a good culture and, you know, they're scared to whistleblow or whatever, or, you know, just tell folks that things are wrong. Or is it something else like maybe, oh, you know, they, they're, they're the kind of person that's just, you know, that that's just something that's not important to them. Compliance is not that important to them. So they're not going to bring it up. I guess it's kind of like, how would you know the causes versus just correlations to these kind of things? And does that even matter for your, you know, when you analyze the data? Yeah, when we analyze it's not so much uh, important to know directly what is the cause of only 40%. Um, I think when we look at the, the data, we're looking, okay, what can we do to improve that number? Because, um, yeah, it would be very difficult for us to go in and try and root out um, why, you know, respondents are answering the question negatively because uh, that would take uh, quite a lot of time and we'd have to do a lot of things kind of outside of the scope of our risk management program. I, I equate a lot of these survey um, responses to a check engine light, right? The check engine light on your car doesn't tell you with 100% certainty that something's wrong. It just kind of tells you something needs to be investigated. Like so that's that. kind of our frame of mind when we're reviewing survey data is um, we acknowledge the certain assumptions and limitations of of these surveys but a low 
percentage of positive responses like that 40% that in your example, uh, Paul, would just lead me to believe, okay, something needs to be investigated and something needs to be done to try and get that up. And then next year, and that's the great thing about FEVS, it's every year. Uh, so it may jump up drastically next year simply because a different pool of people responded or it, it could be some other reason. But I think what we try and, and do is look at the trend over a couple years. One bad year might just be a one-off, but if we're seeing consistently in the 40s, that tells us that something deeper is going on. What can we do to kind of change the attitude of it? And a lot of it, too, is um, reaching out to the leaders in that particular institute or center who may be having you know, the, the culture issues and giving them the tools uh, to kind of change it around. In fact, in a couple months, I'm partnering with our change management gurus to help uh, executive officers and risk champions build a risk-aware culture through change management and culture change techniques um, to, you know, for such a situation as, as you described. Yeah, I love that check engine analogy. Let's start using that one. <laughs> yeah, when my check engine like comes on, I, ju I just like, leave it there. Yeah, I just keep driving and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's not high in my risk register. Um, hey, Paul, can you give a give us a little forward-looking, you know, I, I hear you may be looking at opportunities for using the Government Performance Management Results Act data. Yeah, yeah definitely uh, more data for decision-making is kind of our focus in the next couple years. So the behavioral metrics have been really great for helping us um, look at NIH's risk-aware culture, but also, we want to look at metrics tied to program performance and, and mission performance. So we're looking at uh, Giprama measures. So we are partnering with our colleagues in the performance office who are responsible for developing and monitoring Giprama measures. We're actually hosting a workshop with them in June to educate people on how to build success measures uh, that may be useful in determining whether your program is succeeding or not, but we want to kind of build on this data for decision-making theme and start incorporating risk data and get Brahma data that hopefully will inform our budget process. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, the way ahead for NIH's risk management program. And I guess the next stage in our maturation is to start integrating all these pockets of data at NIH, whether it's you know, get Brahma, whether it's budget, whether it's strategic planning, whether it's um, lab safety data, all these different pockets of data and how can we tie risk data to it yeah. to inform decision-making. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly what should be done, breaking down the silos and integrating the data, then ultimately giving your decision-makers the information they need to figure out what to do. That's great. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of the value of risk management program comes, not so much just reporting out there or just being present at a meeting um, or CC'd on, on an email, which is, a, these are all great first steps. But I think what we're trying to do is really focus on how do we share quantifiable data that will actually, you know, start a discussion and then that discussion leads to an action. Yeah. And I feel like with the, the more integration you get, the more buy-in you get across the agencies from the operation folks, from the finance folks, from the human capital folks, the more integration, and that because it really connects the dots for everyone. 
Yeah, once it's connected and then they see an action or a decision that resulted from those connections, I think that's where, I don't know, the light bulb kind of comes on for folks. And then um, they're asking, you know, to come to risk management or they're asking for the risk people to, to come versus like, you know, trying to keep them away. So, yeah, that integration um, is very, very key. But I think when people start seeing some actions and decisions that come from the integration you know, that's, I think, where the aha moment hit. Yeah. All right. Well, Paul, uh, I think we've come to the end of our show here. I want to thank you very much for, for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Paul and Dan. Yep. No, thanks for having coming on. And I'd encourage people to go go read your article. It was a great read. Um, I'd encourage everyone who's listening to go read his article. Yeah, we'll link it on the on the website so folks can find it. All right. Well, with that, this is Paul Marshall uh, signing off here for for Dan, for for Paul. And uh, thanks again for listening to...